listening to All That Matters. I'm Josh Turpin. I'm Gwen Mann. And I'm Chris Chang and Phillips. All That Matters tells stories about arts and culture around Alberta. Each week, we take small bites out of a big question. And Chris, it sounds like today you were just burning with a question. I am. I, uh, yeah, I'm definitely burning with this. Um, we are at the end of a really long federal election. And although there are all these serious long-term issues that we're all facing, income inequality, climate change, healthcare issues, the Conservatives have dragged the election into a debate about who is a good Canadian are you uh, are you talking about whether women should be able to wear a niqab at a citizenship ceremony? Uh, that and their hope proposal to set up this tip line where neighbors can call the RCMP if they think the people beside them are committing, quote, barbaric cultural practices, unquote. Things like forced marriage and honor killings that are already illegal, but the conservatives think that they can score points for being seen as tougher on them. It's really reframed this whole election around questions of who is behaving like a good Canadian. And the racial overtone behind this is really dangerous territory, I think, for a country whose national mythology is that we all have something to bring to the table and contribute. But it got me thinking, what do we do when we feel like meeting other people's expectations of being well-behaved doesn't fit who we are? And what does it look like when governments actually try to define what good behavior looks like for their citizens? Well, today on All That Matters, we've got two stories for you. One about dangerous materials that may be in your children's hands at this very moment, and writer and illustrator Megs Fitzgerald's story about yearning to be a bit more dangerous. So to start off, Josh and Chris, I heard you guys took a trip to the provincial archives of Alberta. That we did. We got to go backstage into the vaults where they keep all the public records. Uh, we froze our butts off in the really cold vaults where they keep the film reels. Um, and we got to, to touch a real weird piece of Edmonton history. <laughs> yeah, um, we asked the archivist we were with, what was the strangest shaped object they had in yeah. the provincial archives? And he said, actually, they have a piece of the Mindbender roller coaster that went off the rails in 1986 because um, it was part of the inquiry that they kept an actual chunk of it. So we got to touch this big yellow piece of metal. We didn't touch it. Uh, <laughs> so we got to see... <laughs> Uh, but the real reason we were there was to talk to the arch, uh, archivist, Michael Gorley, because in those vaults, he dug up a story about a time when Alberta was very concerned about comic books encouraging bad behavior. The, the opening line, the comic book problem is a worldwide concern. It has assumed such serious proportions that many governments, including those of Canada, the United Kingdom, the United States, and the United Nations, have appointed committees to study this matter. In response to a growing outcry from parents, educators, religious leaders, and others, the government of the Al- province of Alberta issued an order in council which creates the advisory board. My name is Michael Gurley, and I work at the Provincial Archives of Alberta as a government records archivist, which means that I work with the records created by the different departments and ministries that, that, um, that make up the government of Alberta. In, our, in the archives here, we have, um, I believe the current count is 42 kilometers of records. So when I say that, I mean it's a box beside a box beside a box, and they stretch for 42 kilometers, and that's the extent of our holdings. So it's, it's pretty massive. Um, so, but we do have finding aids and databases that help us to find things. 
but with this, uh, it comes up, it's such an odd title for us to find in government records. We're used to seeing, you know, the Cultural Recreation Department or Cultural Affairs Branch, like something very, you can tell what it is by its name, but it's not, I don't know what you say, provocative or, or it doesn't lend you to think like what could be in there. But this, the Advisory Board and Objectionable Publications, when that pops up in the database, it's like, what could this be? So it actually comprises about three bankers' boxes. So that's, it's not a huge amount of records. So one day I just went to look for it. We, had, we wanted to describe something to, to highlight it on our website. So I opened up the box, and in looking through this, we found this section called um, miscellaneous, <laughs> which normally is the, 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 the dumping ground of stuff they couldn't find a home for. So, but in there we found like copies of the comic books code, the article by, you know, Frederick Wortham, um, this publication here called Brainwashing American Style, with its own crazy kind of publication. Um, but also within that, we found reference to this What's Wrong Comic Books. And in digging through the records, we found a copy of it. Um, actually, I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about the cover. Oh, the cover. Yeah. <laughs> I haven't really explored who the artist is of the cover, but it's really quite interesting. It's got this, you know, this orange, orangish, reddish, uh, you know, block. What's wrong with comic books in big, bold, you know, font and letters? And then, uh, the, yeah, it's funny, just reading it. Prepared by the Advisory Board on Objectionable Publications to the Government of the Province of Alberta. It sounds very formal. But then the, the cover itself, aside from the, the, the wording, it's just this beautiful kind of blue and, well, that's the, the, the you know, the, uh, the acceptable part where, you know, it's all, you know, blue and light colored and, uh, and you see, you know, I think it's, uh, <laughs> you know, cowboys and oddly enough pirates, which you'd think would be not acceptable. Uh, guy fishing, uh, a dinosaur and science and football and all these things. But then in the middle, there's this, it looks like a mold kind of growing across the cover with, you know, monsters and, uh, and it looks like loose women and people <laughs> getting shot. And there's a guy, oh, I never noticed the guy getting stabbed in the corner there. There's a dead guy, you know, <laughs> lying there with has been stabbed. And meanwhile, this poor kid is at the bottom. He's reading something. And I guess we're left to wonder, is he reading, you know, the, the nice kind of, you know, dinosaur science, you know, football outdoorsy stuff? Or is he reading about, you know, the monsters and the shootings and stuff? Uh, well, yeah, tell us. What was the advisory board on <laughs> the advisory board on objectionable publications? It was a, uh, it was just an, in in some ways it was just your typical advisory board. They created a lot of them in government in the 1950s to talk to advise about, oh, cultural matters, um, recreational matters, things like that. But in this instance, the advisory board on objectionable publications, its origin lies in um, sort of the North American concern or panic about comic books that arose in the 1950s. There was a sociologist in, I think he was a sociologist in the United States, uh, Frederick Worthen, and he did some research about the impact of horror or, well, more like horror comics, but they included superhero comics and adventure comics, uh, their impact on children. And he said, well, they are the worst possible thing for children. They, they are just, they have, well, <laughs> they have horrible kind of... Uh, imagery, they promote bad messages, they're, they're terrible for literacy, so we have to do something about this. So in other, in other places, it ended up uh, with the creation of the, the comic book code, actually, um, that was set up in the 50s. But in Alberta, um, the influence was felt in the creation of this board to monitor or regulate uh, what they considered to be an objectionable publication. So.
Um, Can you set the scene for us in 1954? Like, what was Alberta like back then? Alberta back then, it was an interesting time for Alberta. Uh, The Social Credit Party had been in power for about 20 years. They came into power in 1935, I believe it was 1935. And so by then, uh, and in the depths of the Depression, so they had sort of had this mixture, at least initially, of sort of religious fervor and... um, and uh, very conservative values, I guess. But by the 1950s, it had sort of, the, the, the nature of this, I think the religious part had sort of uh, taken a backseat to a more just a small C conservative kind of approach to governing. Um, by then, the, the province was much more prosperous. We had the uh, 1947 Leduc oil well uh, that had come in. So the provincial coffers were um, quite flush with money. So they, um, it was just a very sort of um, conservative, um, I would, I'd be tempted to say affluent <laughs> kind of society um, that had, that was sort of developing its culture, finding its cultural feet in a sense. Uh, 1955 was the golden jubilee of the, sort of the, first, the 50th anniversary of the founding of the province. And they had built the Northern and Southern Jubilee Auditoria. They were doing a lot of cultural things at that point. They were trying to sort of, I think, um, show that they weren't just this frontier province that was just, you know, a very rough-hewn kind of place, that there was culture and there was sort of interest in broader cultural matters in the province. Um, and picking up on this cultural milieu of, like, moral panic was, yes. was part of that. <laughs> yes, exactly, yes. Because they think that they, they felt, honestly, that... Um, because it was such a, well, just a North American trend, there are North American kind of movement against comic books. They, they felt they'd gone too far in the, in the area of graphic images, poor um, messages to, to kids, uh, creating a bad impression for kids or, or showing them like, you can, you can disrespect people and nothing will happen. So they felt that, yeah, this was not a, a good thing and that they had to get in front of this. So I don't know of any other province that did the same thing. I don't know if I think they might have in Ontario, but but it's I think it's an unusual advisory board, at least in the Canadian sense. Who was on the board? I mean, in this um, in this guide that you re- reprinted, um, it names like people who live. Uh, I don't know. Like when I read Mrs. John Shrigley, it reminds me like that must have been like a church mom or something. Uh, well, it's interesting. Uh, that, uh, this uh, the list that you mentioned in the in the well, we're referring to the What's Wrong with Comic Books publication. So actually, Mrs. A. J. Moray, who's the chairman, she was actually a librarian at Edmonton Public Library. So it was sort of interesting that there were a lot of librarians involved in this because we see them, I think, now more as fighting for uh, the fact that people should be free freedom to read. They have Freedom to Read Week, whereas. At this point, at least in Alberta, there were librarians who were sort of trying to regulate or monitor what people could see. Uh, so you've got people, academic artists, you've got uh, librarians, you've got, uh, and I think they're also, they weren't represented on the committee, but they were also working with the um, distributors of magazines. So they would say to a distributor of a magazine, here's our list of things you can't sell. And they would usually comply, at least in the early days. They would just comply and say, yeah, we're, we, we, will, we will withdraw this from our newsstand. How do they have the power to do that? Well, that's the interesting thing. I think, <laughs> um, I think it's part of the, con- if you want to think of it this way, the conformity of the 1950s, where here's an authority telling you you can't do this. And I think, I don't know if that's, maybe that's just a broad stereotype in terms of Alberta, or 1950s society in general, but they just, they just agreed. And, but as time grew on, or as time went on, people realized, yeah, they don't actually have any authority. It's an entirely a voluntary thing. And I don't know when the first cracks appeared in that sort of system of regulation of what they could, what 
um, magazine distributors could sell. But at a certain point, their power just sort of began to erode. And by about the 19, I'd say the late 60s, early 70s, they even the, the board members themselves were questioning, what, how, how, what are we doing? We can't control this anymore. We, the, it, it was probably a case where uh, new players were coming into the market and they said, you know, well, why can't we sell this? And the answer was, well, this advisory board tells you you can't. Well, what power do they have? Well, um, it just says they can't. <laughs> so it is very, it, it is odd that this was, there was such conformity over what the board told them to do. And then eventually it just sort of frittered away. It could have been that sort of changing social influence when you saw it to the 60s. It was very much, again, a stereotype, the free and open society where people questioned authority. And, and this was just part of that, that people wouldn't, you know, people wouldn't put up with this kind of censorship over what they were reading anymore. We're talking to Michael Gorley, an archivist at the Provincial Archives of Alberta. Uh, Josh and I asked Michael to tell us about the Advisory Board on Objectionable Publications. Starting in 1954, it tried to prevent parents and distributors from letting kids read comic books because of fears that they would corrupt their minds. The comic book industry was also concerned about public backlash over what they were publishing. Michael showed us a copy of what's called the Comics Code, an attempt by American comics publishers to self-censor themselves to fend off these criticisms. From 1954 to actually the early 2000s, it had a huge influence on what could and couldn't make it into comics from the major publishers like DC, Archie, and Marvel. So it had different sections here talking about sort of general standards, but then it comes into more specific things like what dialogue they're allowed to use, what their costume could look like, how marriage and sex is depicted. What does that say? Divorce shall not be treated, hu treated humorously? <laughs> and not represented as desirable. So you're stuck with the one that brought you, I guess. So, <laughs> um, and then illicit sex relations are neither to be hinted at or portrayed. Violent love scenes as well as sexual abnormalities are unacceptable. The treatment of love romance stories shall emphasize the value of home and the sanctity of marriage. I mean, you can just imagine this is the most bland comic book you ever would have read. <laughs> you have to wonder how many people knew about when they were reading their comic books. Did they know that they are not allowed to um, disrespect authority or that's not dis portrayed here or that judges and police are always to be respected, you know? Did they know that there was an advisory board filtering out what comics that went through that filter even got sold in Alberta? Exactly. How much did they sort of realize how much the message was being uh, monitored and controlled, so? Yeah, I was wondering, why did it end? Why did it end? Uh, a couple things. I think there was that sense that it had reached the end of its useful life, that they couldn't really, there was no legislative uh, power that they had to prevent the distribution of the magazines, it, that people could just do what they wanted. They could ignore this board. And um, I think the other part of it was that um, in about, yeah, it was 73, I think, um, all the, the, well, what happened was the progressive conservatives came into power in 1971. And I think as part of their sort of overview of things, they were sort of realizing, oh, we have to make these appointments to this board because they're going to expire. It's like, well, why do we have this board? And what does it do? <laughs> and so I guess they gradually realized that, yeah, this board has no power and it's just a relic of a certain sort of conservative period that doesn't exist anymore. So it was very sort of routine that the on this advisory board, the terms were set you know, by the terms of appointment and they just let them all expire. They just sort of eventually they, their, their terms expired, I think in 1973 and they just didn't reappoint people. 
it just became a dormant kind of thing. And then they officially got rid of it by another order in council in, I think, 1979 or 76, one of those. So it, it hung on for a couple of years. There were, there were no meetings. There was no activity because there was no point. <laughs> there were no members. So they just, they just disbanded it finally. So I think it was just that sense of it had outlived its usefulness. The panic had passed. <laughs> the comic book industry that created the comic book code and this advisory board that was made up, like you say, of like librarians and passionate Albertans who were concerned about their children's moral welfare, did they see themselves as censors? I'm not sure if they saw themselves as censors. That's an interesting. That's an interesting idea. I don't think that they did. I thought they saw themselves as being, um, oh, uh, knowing what, what, knowing the difference between right and wrong. Like when I read that section about the comic books code, where you know they, well, graphically said, you know, what was that phrase about illicit, <laughs> you know. Um, Sex perversion or any inference the same is strictly forbidden. They would know what that is. Like as the, as these passionate Albertans on this board or these librarians, they would know what that meant. They, that whatever code that was, they would be able to understand it. So, I don't know if they saw themselves as censors or just sort of safeguarding the moral values of of children. I'd have to think about that. But they, of course, the funny thing is now we still have some degree of, you know, we have ratings for movies. So essentially, that's a form of of sense, not really censorship. In a way, it could be considered because they could say. It's, it doesn't really happen, it happens more in the sense of, you know, well, this scene here is too graphic, so you get this kind of rating. If you don't want that kind of rating, you have to cut this out. So, you know, it's, it's, a, different kind of, it's a different kind of view of things, I think. But this, yeah, because this would, they would say, oh, this, this book can't be seen. Like, you will not see this book. So, yeah. <laughs> That's an interesting parallel because, like, today, the, is the MPAA that yeah, ra the makes ratings? Association of America, I think, yeah. Yeah, that's an entirely, like, it's a voluntary system too, right? There's not, that's not a government regulation. I'm, I think I think you're right. Yeah, they they developed a, a, a self-regulatory system where they've designed codes and and that you know you have to submit it to this entity for them to review it and they determine what rating it will get. Yeah. So like this book, like I don't know. I I, I think it's hilarious because it seems so jarring with how we think about comic books now, um, but we do talk in kind of a moral panicky way sometimes about movies or video games and how they influence kids. Mm -hmm. Yeah, we do. I mean, it, it seems to sort of spike in certain ways like video games or or even, I mean, Dungeons and Dragons board games, you know, people being concerned about their influence on people and wanting it somehow restricted. And, and um, yeah, it, it exists in certain other kinds of media that they, that, that people want some element of control, like, a, like rap music, the lyrics and the was it the 90s, <laughs> the parental advisory, you know, sticker that went on to things. So there are these sort of systems, I guess, systems of control or review that, that, that existed at a certain time. And it's, it's interesting to see how this Alberta example, um, yeah, reflects an early version of that. Thanks for that story, Josh and Chris. And thanks to the Provincial Archives of Alberta's Michael Gourley for speaking with us. You can find reproductions of the What's Wrong with Comic Books guide at their store in Edmonton. You're listening to All That Matters. I'm Josh Turk. And I'm Gwen Mann. All That Matters tells stories about arts and cultures around Alberta. Each week, we take small bites out of a big question. This week, who decides what's good behavior? Gwen, one of the sections for parents inside the What's Wrong with the Comic Books booklet is a rating scale to see if what their kids are reading is objectionable. Or think, of, uh, think of one of your favorite books. Okay. Hmm, I have one. Um, 
I used to read Archie comics a lot. <laughs> okay. Um, okay, we'll go through this really quickly. Uh, does the comic glorify crime and criminals? Yes or no? Yes. Okay. It's <laughs> pretty quick. Does it overemphasize sex? Yes or no? Hmm. Well, I'd say yeah. Does it uh, foster prejudice? Hmm. Archie comics. There no, I don't know. There, I don't think there's anybody who isn't white in Riverdale. Who isn't white? Yeah. I'd say so. Okay, so, yeah. yeah. <laughs> Does it uh, portray excessive violence? Sometimes Moose bashes him over the head. Oh. Ah. Uh, and hmm. uh, does the language printing and illustrating impair your child's reading and language skills? Yes or no? <laughs> I don't think it affected me when I was reading it when I was a kid. Well, Gwen, congratulations. Uh, you failed. But... Uh, <laughs> <laughs> We've decided to ignore the advisory board. All right. Fair enough. That's right. Our next story comes from a graphic memoir. It's by writer and illustrator Megs Fitzgerald, who's originally from Edmonton. Her first graphic novel, Photo Booth, was the winner of the 2015 Doug Wright Spotlight Awards. But her second book, Long Red Hair, is more personal. It's a story about sisterhood, sexuality, and how she decided how to be true to herself. Chris Chang and Phillips spoke with her in Edmonton. Um, all right, yeah, well, I would love to talk to you about uh, Long Red Hair. Um, I guess a logical place to start would be, uh, why did you decide to write this book? I don't even think I decided so much as it just, like, stories just started popping up in my head, and it just sort of felt natural. Um all these memories were coming to me and I realized that there were links that tied them together and I realized how um, important these really tiny stories were to ultimately shaping my identity or, or there were sort of like early signals of the person I would eventually become. Um, and so it, it just felt uh, like the timing was right. So I, I think that we often um, pro make new things to process something that we're going through internally. And so I think it was just sort of the, the timing for me to start processing some of this stuff. What was one of those memories that was coming up in your mind? Um, there's a chapter halfway through the book where I am, where I've invited my friend Lily over for a sleepover, and that chapter was the crux of what the whole book was built around. Um, I, I remembered that moment in my life and was like, "Whoa!" I I couldn't have seen it then, of course, but um, it has all these signs for for who I am now in it. So, so in that chapter, uh, you and Lily are playing dress up, right? Mm -hmm. um, and you ask her to dress up as witches. I'm like, uh, I, 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 when I was reading that thing about Hocus Pocus, I was like, oh, yeah, I love that movie, too. Yeah. Um, and then um, you're, there are all these themes running through of, like, other witchy sort of media that you're talking about, like Sabrina the Teenage Witch. Um, what was it at, at that time about witches that compelled you? So, yeah, I think that as little girls for myself in particular, but a lot of people my age, we were really drawn to these films that dealt with the macabre and the occult and these darker subject matters because it felt dangerous. And in contrast, a, a popular film that came out at that time was Toy Story 1. And if you look at how women and little girls are portrayed in that film, um, they're virtually non-existent. So the only toy that's a, a girl is uh, Bo Peep, and she's a porcelain lamp figurine. Um, and then there's Andy's mom and his little sister, but they're not really fleshed out characters. So 
as a kid attaching themselves to what they see in the media, you know, I could look at Bo Peep or I could look at Wednesday in the Adams Family. Um, and so it was just very obvious that I, I had a draw to, to these darker, potentially more dangerous, more mysterious characters. You have lots of scenes in the book where you're talking about moments where you felt like rejected or kind of um, cast out by people because of these feelings of being different. And that moment at the sleepover, um, you, you portray the scene where um, she says like, oh, we shouldn't be playing as witches because it's not good. It's not what Jesus would do. What did it mean to you when you were a kid to be good? Um, I think that like, being good in my understanding of the sense just sort of meant like being well behaved. Um, so I grew up in a family with an older sister and two younger brothers. And then later I reconnected with an older sister that my parents had given up for adoption. Um, so I have two older sisters and two younger brothers and it, and I also have a huge extended family and the best thing you could do for the household as a whole was just be quiet. <laughs> you know, like it was just to not add to the chaos. Not that my parents were suppressing us in any way or anything from from expressing ourselves, but I kind of found my role as the middle child uh, to be just as easy as possible on other people. And so I think that for a long time, I did, that meant just sort of like slinking into the shadows as an introvert and just drawing while my other siblings demanded attention. I mean, I, I have my hand full of like hissy fits and, you know, attention needing moments too, of course. But um, I, I think I was a pretty, pretty quiet child for that reason. That's sort of the, the spot that I fell into. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so what encouraged you to start taking these steps to like match those two things, the way you felt inside, the way you wanted to be on the outside? Uh, I think it was unintentional at first and it was just taking steps to feeling better. And then as I became aware of the steps that I was taking and how they were forming, I realized that like, oh, I actually, in, in taking this time for myself and reflecting on myself instead of reflecting on a partner, I'm actually just kind of becoming my own ideal partner. Um, so I enjoy my company a lot, which is probably why I'm still uh, an unpartnered person. Um, I enjoy it. I love the company of other people, but um, I like first and foremost in my life is my relationship with myself, um, which sounds like a very like millennial thing to say, <laughs> probably, which which is okay. What was interesting to me about reading this book is that you show this journey that you went through, but it doesn't feel like there's like one crisis moment that sets you on this path to trying to like find a match between how you feel inside and how you present yourself outside. Was that intentional? maybe to like show that some people's journey is not like one breaking cathartic moment, but sometimes it's just a, a, a cascade of small moments. Yeah, it was intentional. So I think um, a lot of books that deal with coming out stories often have a lot of drama in them, you know, and a lot of the time, like a major thread through, the, through those books is that a parent or, you know, a close figure is not accepting of them being uh, gay or bi or whatever. Um, and in this case, my parents were totally accepting of that. So um, that's not what the central drama is. It's more just about the negotiating with yourself. Um, I think that a big part of the reflection that I did after this breakup that I mentioned in the book, uh, the reason why I was able to sort of process it and move on in the way that I did and uh, was because I, as a teen, already had to process a lot internally to figure out 
what my sexual orientation was. Um, and so I think that a lot of people who identify as queer have this sort of extra strong sense of self because they are forced to really evaluate themselves in a way that people who maybe, you know, live in a way that is more in alignment with the mainstream don't have to question. Hmm. Okay, without spoiling the plot of the book too much, um, the the end of the book kind of finds you in this place today where you've done a lot to mold yourself into the kind of person that you want to be, regardless of what other people think. Um, what would you say to girls struggling to look in the mirror and like what they see now? Uh, so one of the things that I don't talk specifically about in the book, um, but resonates with, you know, how I felt uncomfortable with what I saw in the mirror, um, is the fact that my face is really asymmetrical. Um, and I actually have a, a condition so that I have, um, less bone density on one side of my face than on the other. And so that was something that, that upset me, uh, growing up seeing that asymmetry. Um, but now as an adult, I have just recontextualized that and recognized that it makes my face interesting and no one looks like me. Um, and it makes me very interesting to be photographed and on film and I've done some short films and stuff like that. And, um, because I have so many more angles uh, that can be captured and I can take on a lot of different personas um, depending on the angle of the camera and how light catches me and I can look like different people. So um, the older I've become, the more I've just embraced these quote-unquote flaws and recognize that they just make me better at being me. Thanks to Megs Fitzgerald for speaking with us. You can catch her speaking about her book tonight here in Edmonton. Her local launch for Long Red Hair is going on right now at Happy Harbor Comics. It goes till 7 p.m. Well, that does it for this week on All That Matters. All That Matters is a production of CGSR 88.5 FM in Edmonton. Thanks to Chris Chang and Phillips for reporting with us this week and for production. If you have any questions, comments, ideas about the show, send us an email. We're allthatmatters at cgsr.com. You can find all our episodes on our website, allthatmatterscjsr.wordpress.com. We're also on Facebook and on Twitter. We're at ATMCJSR. Our theme music is by Dokashit Teru. Additional music today by Rasheen Murphy. We'll have been your hosts, Gwen Mann. And Josh Turpin. Thanks for listening.